Saturday, September 23rd, 2017, time for episode 27 of the Barnhart Podcast. With apologies to Dustin, who was going to mow the other half of his lawn yesterday while listening to today's podcast, we're back with Friday's podcast on Saturday. And since I'm running short on clever and pithy things to say at the top of this show, how about we recap Tuesday's show really quick and then get right into this morning's content. Sure thing. Tuesday's show was all about, well, mostly it was about Vatican II and how Vatican II is a flaming dumpster fire filled with a dog's breakfast. And thank you to all of the Latinists who sent in various and sundry ways of better translating um, flaming dumpster fire of, of dog's breakfast. Uh, <laughs> I saw all of them, but you know, it's, it's kind of, it's the benefit of not actually being a classicist that you can kind of mangle your Latin a little bit and, and get away with and it get, and get away with it and totally get away with it. So I'm just, I'm just going to rock it the way it is and we can all get a good laugh over it. So mostly it was Vatican II, Flaming Dumpster Fire, Dog's Breakfast. And um, then we started in, we were looking at the the schema documents, the original documents that were drafted uh, uh, for what the agenda of Vatican II should have been, was supposed to be. It was drafted by the good guys. It was dra- drafted by actual Catholics, led by Cardinal Ottaviani, with the assistance of Archbishop Lefebvre, who was working under him at that time. And um, we were, in particular, we were going through the um, schema document on marriage and family, and just going through paragraph by paragraph and looking at the just incredibly prophetic things that were said in this document and it's all happening right now and super nerd super nerd and i made the point on that podcast that it's it's almost as if bergoglio and his and his clack of faggots have looked at that document and systematically said, we're going to go through and we're going to attack every single one of these points that's in the original schema document. And it seems to me that that's pretty much what they're doing. But um, before we dive in, I I think we're going to try to cover three more paragraphs of the schema document in this episode. But before we jump into that, I think um, we need to address the heresy of Donatism, which which is cropping up all over the place, I get lots and lots of emails from people who are explicitly falling into the heresy of Donatism, and so we need to we need to discuss that now. Well, super to, nerd a, to a to a small degree, I fall into this a little bit in terms of podcasting. I want to make this absolutely perfect. I want the audio to be perfect. I obsess over getting all the settings just right, as though if it's not perfect, it can't be done. Right, right, um, and and that's slightly that, tongue in cheek. Well, I mean, but you, he, it's true. It's true. Sometimes I have to talk super nerd off the ledge because he's hes really worried about audio quality and things like that. And, you know, especially when we're first getting started, I was I kept telling super nerd is like, dude, I remember doing um, cattle market, you know, commentaries on AM farm radio, wherein I would be on my cell phone driving in my car being recorded, giving cattle market commentary that would then be um, go out on AM radio. And I mean, it's anyone who's over the age of about, I don't know, do 30 year olds remember AM radio and all that? Do you remember that incredibly low, low fidelity, low quality sound? And um, so, you know, back in my day, I was still doing 
I was still doing AM radio and then recording it on a cell phone. So it sounded awful. And uh, I keep trying to tell Super Nerd Man, it's okay as long as they as long as they can understand it. It's good to it's good to try to always improve, obviously. But you know, we also don't need to be spending enormous enormous amounts of money to get like a one half of one percent increase in audio fidelity or whatever you want to call it. You know, you have to ha- you have to find a good balance there. But donatism, donatism is, um, I think. Satan is really going after trads, especially with this a lot. And, you know, people are seeing that there are these just spectacularly evil men, um, bishops, priests, sex perverts, child abusers, on and on and on. People who are just, who clearly are trying to destroy the church, who have an active conscious agenda they're at war with God. They hate God. They hate his holy church. They're trying to destroy it. They're trying to build this new Freemasonic monstrosity. Okay, people are looking at that and saying, well, there's no way that when when those men offer the mass, that that mass can be valid. There's no way that some guy can be, can be some um, sodomite or some child abuser clearly doesn't believe any any of what the church teaches, clearly has not been to confession, anything like that. They don't believe in confession, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they openly preach pro-sodomite. It's pro-sodomy. Your sins aren't sins, blah, blah, blah. How can you tell me, how can you tell me that these men's, that the sacraments that these men are, are attempting to confect are actually done? Well, they are. And they absolutely are validly confected. They're illicitly confected if the priest is in a state of grave mortal sin when he offers the holy sacrifice. Obviously, obvi- obviously, it's illicit for a priest to offer the holy sacrifice in a state of unconfessed, unrepentant mortal sin. Of course, it's illicit. It does not, ladies and gentlemen, get your heads around this right now. It does not invalidate the sacrament. The sacraments are valid. The Eucharist is confected. That priest, I don't, if that priest had just raped a boy back in the sacristy and then immediately processed out and offered the mass, it would be validly confected. Now, the sin of sacrilege that that priest would have just committed, that, that's on him. It has nothing to do with you, me, or anyone else who's out in the nave. This is the heresy of Donatism. The heresy of Donatism says that the priest has to be perfect. He has to be, he has to be spotless and in, in a, just a pure, perfect state of grace in order for the sacraments to be confected. This is a very old heresy. This is from way back in the fourth century. The genesis of it is that, um, you know, there's there's obviously these terrible persecutions and so forth. People are being are being killed, are being killed by by the state, so on and so forth. And they they die as martyrs, refusing to apostatize, refusing to renounce Christ. There are other people within the Christian community who did not persevere and who did in order to save their own lives, to to spare themselves being tortured, whatever it was. There were 
of course there were. There were people who would then apostatize and renounce Christ in order to save, for lack of a better word, in order to save their own backside, you know? These people who had under torture, under threat of death, et cetera, et cetera, these people who had uh, apostatized and renounced Christ would then many times, I mean, they knew what they did. They would come back and they would, they would confess their sin. They would confess, you know, not, not dying for the faith and they would confess the, the, the terrible sin of apostasy and they would come back in. And some of these people were priests too. And so there, this, this, uh, rancor built up because there were lots of people in the Christian community who had watched their their family members, you know, their beloved friends, the people in their community die, die for Christ, never, never apostatized. And then here come these other people back in who were weak and didn't persevere. And the people who had lost their friends and family to martyrdom were looking at this and saying, well, this isn't right. These people... You know, this take a priest, and especially it's in the context of priests. Take a priest who apostatizes in order to save his own life, who then confesses, comes back into the church. The people who had lost friends and family said, "There's no way I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, receive mass from this priest. There, there's no way that his his uh, his mass can be valid." And and so that's the genesis of this whole idea that the interior state and disposition of um, the priest has has a bearing on the validity of whether or not the um, the sacraments, most especially, obviously, the offering of the holy sacrifice of the mass, as to whether or not it is valid. this is this is a poisonous, poisonous heresy because then what it what it ends up doing is basically, if you take it to its logical conclusion, we're all sinners, all of us. Nobody's perfect. Nobody is worthy. It, it, no human being could possibly, possibly ever be worthy to offer the holy sacrifice of Calvary. Sit and think about it. Think about what it is. Who is this human being who is worthy to offer the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ? to the Father for the atonement of all the sins of the world. Nobody's worthy to do that ever. Furthermore, God isn't a jerk. <laughs> and, and this is, I think this all boils down, going back on beating my drum, getting on my bandwagon about people not having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about this. Why in the world God loving you as much as he does, God wanting nothing more than to come down onto the altar to, to make himself physically substantially present in the Eucharist so that you can receive him into, into your own physical body and you can receive him body, blood, soul, and divinity. And he would, he would go through his entire passion, his entire death on the cross. He'd go through the entire thing for you and you alone, and he would do it as many times as you go in your life to the holy sacrifice of the mass. As many times as you assist in your entire life at mass, that's how many times he would go through his entire passion 
just for you. All right, so, so we, we take this as a base premise. Given that, does it make any sense whatsoever? And yes, I'm banging on the table. Does it make any sense whatsoever, given that amount of love, that he would hold you, he would hold you responsible for what, what the priest is doing, what for the priest's life, for the priest's sins? How, how, how do you know? How could you possibly know? what the interior disposition of the priest is. How could you possibly know what sins this priest is committing? How how could you know? How could you be held responsible for that? How could you know whether or not the priest has been to confession, when he's been to confession? How can you know the interior disposition of the priest? And furthermore, even if you did know, why would Christ hold you responsible for the sins of the priest? You're not thinking. You're not thinking. Jesus Christ is not a philosophy or, or a, a, a written a codex of law. He is a person. He is a person. And he's not a jerk. He's not a jerk. He's not trying to trick you. He's not trying to get out of, of, of being close to you or anything like that. He's not trying to dodge you. He loves you. Why in the world would he hold you responsible for the priest? He doesn't. Um, and so you cannot fall into this, this vile heresy of Donatism. And with everything that's going on, people are doing it. It's happening right and left. And would, would, you receive, would you receive Holy Communion from Father James Martin, SJ? You're darn right I would. I have received many times I have been I have assisted at masses that were celebrated by men that I knew to be homosexuals. I have been uh, with servers in the sanctuary that I knew to be homosexuals. Would I receive Holy Communion from from any sodomite or James Martin? Yep, sure would. You know why? Because it's Jesus. The Eucharist is Jesus. I'm not there to worship James Martin or any other priest. Are you? Who, who are you having this personal relationship with then? Is, if, if that, that's my question. If you're having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, why is it that you keep confusing Jesus for all of these other people? I mean, seriously, think about, uh, you know, just one of your one of your pals, one of your buddies in, in your in your normal everyday life. Think about a friend. Let's have let's let's call him Joe. You have a friend named Joe. You're really good friends with Joe. Your Joe was one of your best buddies. Um, do you ever, ever confuse Joe for anybody else? Do you ever look at Joe and are absolutely convinced that Joe is Randy? Or that Joe is is Fred, or that Joe works the job that that Ben works. I mean, you, you don't you don't confuse your friends for other people. You know who your friends are. You know who their what their identity is. You know who they are, what they do, and what your relationship is to them. You don't confuse your dear close friends with other people. That's exactly what you're doing with this, with this heresy of Donatism. You're looking at the priest and saying, well, that's Jesus. Well, no, that isn't Jesus. That is the priest who is standing at the altar in persona Christi, 
but it's the, the priest isn't Jesus himself. And I think there's this there's just this fundamental la- lack of again, just having a personal relationship with Christ. <laughs> Jesus is Jesus and the priest is the priest. Why would you why would you confuse the two? You don't confuse Joe and Ben. Why would you con- c- confuse Jesus Christ, God Almighty, with anyone else? You can't. And if you're if you are doing that, then you need to sit down and figure out exactly what your relationship with Christ is. If you don't even know his identity, if you don't even know who he is. Now, I found a really, really good quote from St. Augustine on Donatism. um, And we'll put I'll put the link to the Donatism uh, page at New Advent. Um, We'll put this in the show notes. And here's the quote from St. Augustine. Taconius, assailed on all sides by the voices of the holy pages, awoke and saw the church of God diffused throughout the world, as had been foreseen and foretold of her so long before by the hearts and mouths of the saints. And seeing this, he undertook to demonstrate and assert against his own party that no sin of man, however villainous, and monstrous can interfere with the promises of God, nor can any impiety of any persons within the church cause the word of God to be made void as to the existence and diffusion of the church to the ends of the earth. Taconius, assailed on all sides by the voices of the holy pages, awoke and saw the church of God diffused throughout the world as had been foreseen and foretold of her so long before by the hearts and mouths of the saints. And seeing this, he undertook to demonstrate and assert against his own party that no sin of man, however villainous and monstrous, can interfere with the promises of God, nor can any impiety of any persons within the church cause the word of God to be made void as to the existence and diffusion of the church to the ends of the earth, which was promised to the fathers and now is manifest, unquote. Um, that sums it up beautifully. Um, note that he makes a point, however villainous and monstrous. And, you know, if, if, any of the listeners out there scroll down and look at the post I made immediately before this podcast about Joseph Chambra's um, expose and writings upon about the truth uh, of the sodomite milieu and, and what goes on and what sodomites actually do. Then, you know, these words monstrous and villainous, you know, they just spring to life. When you talk about the the abuse of boys, monstrous and villainous, but they these can never interfere with the promises of God. Okay, not, Th- this, notwithstanding the validity, uh, no, no mm-hmm. matter how monstrous the priest is and how mm-hmm. in need of confession and redemption he is, it does mm-hmm. not affect the validity of the mass and the sacraments he confects. However, right. if you knew for a fact that he was in such a state and you had the alternative to go someplace else you ought to. And the reason is, it's not that there's any lack of validity in the sacraments he's offering, but you are in a certain sense piling on his culpability by attending masses ah, at that point. So that's the, that's point. the one point where somebody who falls into this quasi Donatist or over overt Donatist angle might have a, 
a legitimate twinge of conscience. Uh, you made the point. Mm. Would you go to con- to communion to Father Martin S.J.? I, I heck no, I would. If wouldn't. that was if well, if that was the only, I guess I should qualify that rightly. And this is a, this is an excellent precision. If that was my only my only option. Now, obviously that's never going, probably never going to happen to me. Please God, let that never happen to me that the James Martin is my only option. Um, but yes, and this is, this is actually a really interesting point of departure because now we get into questions of, okay, if you are aware that the priest is, I mean, you know, engaging in, in sodomitical activity that he is, um, well, it like, like James Martin SJ, this guy is out there actively, uh, advocating, encouraging people to engage in acts of sodomy. This guy is pushing sodomy as a positive good. Now, the, the, the real moral question, it seems to me, is why, why are you putting up with this? And that's the question I've been asking about, you know, y- you, can, you can put this to the church ever since the, the 1964, 1965, when they started, when the infiltrators really started implementing this agenda of just destroying the liturgy, doing all this stuff. And what people did and it's the it's it's the greatest generation. It's the World War II generation who started it. You know, you know, Tom Brokaw named them the greatest generation. They have ma- they have the lion's share of the culpability because they sat there silent and just watched all of this happen. Um, and then their children, the baby boomers, who have this spirit of indocility and rebellion well they just they climbed on board they anything that they saw as an act of rebellion they they ratified so they have culpability and now here we are to generation x generation y with our spirit of narcissism and effeminacy and well just i can't be bothered and you know i uh, i want people to like me so on and so forth i can't i can't complain cuz i might be seen by other people to be xyz and on and on and on so why why hasn't anyone said anything about any of this when these priests started acting like faggots up on the altar when these novus ordo masses turned into these filthy, wretched, faggot priests fulfilling their lifelong dream of of having a one-man off-Broadway show. Why? Why did people just walk away? Why didn't they fight? Why didn't they fight for the church? There used to be there used to be back in the day when when somebody there's there's an anecdote and I can never remember it precisely. But I mean, centuries and centuries ago, someone tried to change the the antiphons in one of one of the Vesper cycles of something, you know, the let's call it the octave of Pentecost or something. And someone tried to slightly alter the the antiphons and and people rioted, people rioted. And, And you now look and you've got you've got all of this crap happening and these filthy priests like like James Martin SJ and instead of anyone saying anything or doing anything it's just well I'm going to leave or I'm going to drop into the heresy of donatism no it's precisely because his sacraments are valid it's precisely because of that that we need to fight for the church and we need to 
we need to stand up and say these these massive acts of of sacrilege that father is committing these sins of sacrilege that father is committing and he will answer for can you imagine can you imagine what hell is going to be like for james martin fj if he dies unrepentant of this and when i say i mean he's going to have to repent of all of this he's going to have to repent of all of this this faggotry he's going to have to repent for the lies that he has told people he's going to have to repent for encouraging people into sodomy and on all of it if he does not repent of all of this before he dies i i just do not see how he could possibly possibly get through his particular judgment. There's just no way he's going to end up in hell. And what is hell going to be like for him? He is going to be surrounded by all of the other people, not, not just other sodomites. And specifically with, in terms of sodomites who are active, they end up in hell being surrounded with all of the other people that they've committed these horrible sex acts with raging at each other, just raging at each other for all eternity. Then you look at someone like Martin. He would be, he will be, if he doesn't, if he doesn't repent of all this, he will spend all of eternity. It will never end. It will never cease surrounded by all of the people that he drove into hell, that he scandalized into hell. Actually, and since he since he has the indelible mark of a priest, he's going to be far enough down that most people aren't going to be be able to see him, and that's going to be the even more scarier part, and even worse off than him will be all the the, the bishops and and prelates who mm. did not step in and do something. They will be at the floor of hell. Yep, absolutely. And you know, they people they wonder about how how could God allow the people who are in hell to be tormented does isn't isn't that cruel doesn't that mean that god is cruel and it, no you know what the real teaching is the real teaching is is that god permits these torments as a merciful distraction because the ultimate uh, the ultimate torment of hell and the reason why hell is hell is because you know if you're there that you will never ever, ever see God, it could have been so easy and that it, this will never end. And so as a merciful distraction, think about that. We, people who end up in hell will be tormented by demons, um, by, by other people. Um, I mean, imagine now, imagine James, he's not a bishop, is he? He's just no, a priest, no, no. right? All right, right okay. A- so right now, I mean, he'll, yeah, he'll probably be made a bishop and eventually a cardinal at this rate, the way, you know, Bergoglio was trying to destroy the church. But right now he isn't. Let's say, let's say something happens and he dies tonight. So he would be, as Super Nerd said, you know, the, these priests and bishops, they have such, such culpability, such culpability. Um, imagine James Martin raging at his Jesuit superiors, um, at, at bishops, at cardinals, at Bergoglio, at all of these people who should have corrected him and should be correcting him. I mean, at this point, this guy, Martin should be laicized. 
Martin should be laicized. And in, in a sane world where, where we talk about the sovereign kingship of Jesus Christ, not only would, would, um, would he be laicized, but he'd obviously be prosecuted for, for criminal offenses. And, uh, you know, it, it, the, these offenses are so grave and he is doing such damage to so many souls and it is so wicked and so pernicious what he's doing. And we're going to get into this in one of the schema documents in, in, in a moment that I, I don't, I don't see how this could not be a capital offense. I mean, I, I think, I think we would be talking about what, what James Martin is doing is a capital crime and I hope he hears this. So James Martin, you know, you can call me whatever you want. You can attempt to have me prosecuted. I mean, you can attempt to have my website shut down again. Bring it. James Martin, if you're listening to this, I am one of your best friends on the planet. I am one of the only people on the planet who's willing to tell you the truth about yourself. If you do not repent of this, you will go to one of the deepest circles of hell where you will spend all of eternity in 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 absolute torment and and in in a sane world you should be laicized you should be arrested and tried for capital offenses for the damage for the damage that you are doing to so many souls period and yet somebody in his situation is one confession away from turning yep. his life around and getting it all exactly. straightened out that's right it can, it can all end. James Martin, you can repent of all of this and you can become a good, holy priest. You can help people get to heaven instead of sending people to hell the way you are now in your prideful, narcissistic, diabolical usury of other human beings as objects to provide you with narcissistic supply and to ratify your filthy, disgusting perversions. That all can stop. It can stop five minutes from now, James Martin. Just go confess your sins and stop this. What, what is it going to take? And you know, that, that's the sad thing. And it's, it goes back to the notion of law enforcement and why do we have punishment for crimes? Why, why do all of these things exist? Let, let's be honest. What reason does James Martin have right now in his own mind to stop doing any of this? He's being his career is going great guns. He's being sent right up, right up the ladder in, in Bergoglio's Vatican in the Curia. He's being sent right up the ladder. He's popular. He's got people on Facebook telling him constantly how wonderful he is because he's ratifying those people in their sins against the sixth commandment. He's got all of this worldly, worldly adulation, popularity, so on and so forth. What, what, what is going to make him stop? Well, I know what might cons what might make him stop. Now, it isn't going to happen in, in this world the way it is, careening into hell as it is. Maybe if James Martin were arrested and tried for obscenity and for causing scandal and, you know, corrupting youth and so on and so forth. Maybe if he was facing down a capital, a capital trial. And perhaps even life imprisonment or execution for this. 
oh my gosh, people were executed for far, far, far less than this. Because what people were focused on is what is this person doing to souls? Is this person driving people into hell? Well, see, nobody even actually believes in hell anymore. Bergoglio doesn't believe in hell. Bergoglio has said clearly that he doesn't believe in hell. All he believes in is soul annihilation. If you don't make, if you don't achieve the beatific vision, uh, don't worry about it. There's just soul annihilation. So the, there isn't even the threat of, of being executed for a capital crime, going to hell for all eternity, and thus making a good confession and getting right with God before you receive the just punishment for what you've done. And I mean, James Martin is a murderer. He is a soul murderer, cold calculated, premeditated, luxuriating in it, luxuriating in the fact that he is murdering the souls of other human beings and most especially of young people. He's, he's hunting, he's hunting young people and children and trying to drag them into hell with him. He is, he's one of the Right now, he's one of the biggest mass murderers on the planet. But, oh, that doesn't count because he's, he's not murdering anybody's body. He's just murdering their souls. And come on, we don't actually believe any of that bullshit anyway. Right? Right? Well, we, we, we act like we don't believe it. We act like we don't believe it. Well, and I, so, I don't mean to make a joke, but one thing that, that uh, James Martin has managed to achieve is that all of the um – Let's say the, the different factions on the traditional Catholic side can line up in, in opposition to him, whether it's uh, church militant TV or uh, other trad uh, outfits mm-hmm. and, and even the set of a contest. Perhaps it's time to call for a novena to, for this guy's soul. If he, yeah, if he can absolutely. actually unite trads, this is something trads can't do. So it, yeah. there's, there's one good thing <laughs> right. coming out of it. That's right. I have never there's I don't know of anybody on the trad side of the spectrum who is in any way an apologist for for James Martin. That's a great idea. We should do a novena. We will do the James Martin novena. Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. There's the old joke that if if traditional Catholics were told to to form a firing squad, they would form an inward-facing circle. Inward-facing circle, absolutely. You cannot organize trads whatsoever, but (laughs) it seems like we we can find common cause on this. So so let's let's use what we can here to, to form some sort of unity. Let's pray for James Martin's soul. And even even if it doesn't seem to make any effect, prayers are never wasted. The the divine economy always benefits from from actions like this. So let's pick right. let's pick a date and do it. All right. Well, um, I think we should start it. Well, let me look in fact and see if there's any sort of a a big feast that we can hit coming up very soon. Um, and um, no, but I'll, I'll get it. I'll figure it out and I'll get it posted tonight. Um, the other quick two quick points I wanted to make about this is like for example. Um, there are a lot of people who have realized in the aftermath of all of this pedophilia, priestly pedophilia scandals and all this, there are people who, you know, turned on the news one night and realized that they had, for example, been married by a a Paul Shanley or one of the pedophile priests. Um, well, of course you're married. Of course you're married. Remember, especially at at a wedding, um, the, the husband and wife are the ministers of the sacrament. And the priest is a witness. Um, so, of course, the 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 disposition of the soul, or you know, the state of of the priest who married you that that is that has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not you're validly married. Of course, you are validly married. Um, and see if there's 
Uh, oh, and to say that to say that the sacraments of these of these priests are valid, I mean, it, it never. I, I always have to remind myself that you have to state things that that seem to us to be completely obvious, but you have to say these things explicitly. To say that the sacraments are valid as confected by a let's say a sodomite or even a child raping priest, in no way, in absolutely no way, does that does that excuse the behavior of the priest. And I, I think we've we've covered that pretty well, but these things you just have to say them explicitly or else people tend to get confused. So I don't know. I think I think that kind of hits what I wanted to get at with Donatism. Can you think of anything else you want to say about this, Super Nerd? I don't have anything else perfectly set up, so no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, given that then, I think we should jump back into um, the schema document. And in this episode, we are going to look at, let's see, we did paragraphs four and five last week or last episode. And this time we're going to do paragraphs six, seven and 11. So I'll start with paragraph number six. And it is titled The Defense and Care of Chastity. Oh, isn't this timely? If chastity, which is so important to God, is really to be preserved, it must be loved effectively and be humbly and vigilantly guarded, defended, and promoted by apt, natural, and especially by supernatural means. Mindful of the Lord's words against those who scandalize, the church has the right and duty to repudiate those who give scandal and especially the public corruption of sexual morality. We were just talking about this. And civil authority, ah, listen to this. And civil authority also must guard and defend morality by appropriate and effective means, especially by assisting the efforts of all individuals or groups to foster public morality, including cases where it is being harmed by writings, radio programs, television, or other instruments of human culture. Wow. How about that? 1960, 1961 is when these documents were being written. And again, it's right there. So speaking, let's see the first, the first paragraph, um, if chastity, which is so important to God, is, re- is really to be preserved, that's so timely because what has come up just within the last week and maybe even since the last episode is who is this bishop? Bishop McElroy um, comes out and has this quote where he's saying that, you know, chastity really isn't the most important thing, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, he's McElroy is James Mar- one of James Martin's top enablers and McElroy is is a bishop and McElroy you know he's he's uh, on team Bergoglio he's one of Bergoglio's new american boys there's you know Bergoglio is setting up this basically you know getting back into that cardinal joseph bernardin um who and cardinal joseph bernardin was a satanist and and a child rapist um and just off flaming, flaming sodomite, but was actually a Satanist. And Bernadine ran, basically ran the church in the United States for 30, 30 plus years. And he picked, he picked who was made a bishop in the United States. 
And um, yeah, it's uh, it bears mentioning that that basically all happened right under the nose of JP2. And we're going to get into into discussions of that a little bit later. Um and Sat- so, Satanists can convert and become saints, and next yep. Tuesday is a great example of it. Saint Cyprian, who was a one of the highest ranking satanic priests at the time, converted because he could not pervert uh, Saint uh, Justina, and asked his uh, demonic counselors, "Why is it none of these spells work?" And he said, "Oh, because God is more powerful than we are." And he said, "Oh, mm. then I'm going to serve him." But I, I digress. Yeah, well, it's a good point. There's there's a, there's a 20th century, either late 19th, early 20th century saint um, who was down. He was a guy who was down in Naples and was was a practicing Satanist, and he he converted and ended Bartolo up Bartolo Longo. Bartolo Longo, exactly. Bartolo Longo. In fact, that's the shrine of Pompeii. It's the his shrine is at Pompeii. Um, and so, yes, of course, anybody, anybody, God's mercy is infinite, but it doesn't look good for, um, Joseph Bernadine because of course he insisted that the Chicago gay men's choir sing at his, uh, funeral, if you even want to call it that. So not a good sign there, but they're, these people are attacking chastity and saying it's no it's no big deal. You don't have to be chaste in order to be on good terms with God. It's like, well, excuse me, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Um, Martin is now saying things like, um, you know, the LGBT community has not received and accepted the teachings of the church with regards to sexual morality. So therefore, you're not held to it. Well, we we don't receive the teaching, so therefore it doesn't apply to us. I mean, this is this is just it's satanic. It's absolutely satanic what what these people are doing. And here here in this schema document, chastity, which is so important to God, it must be loved effectively and be humbly and vigilantly guarded, defended, and promoted by apt natural and especially supernatural means and this is this is another huge point i keep saying over and over again these people don't actually believe in any of this they consider the catholic faith the true catholic faith to be bullshit they can they consider it all to be bullshit they do not believe in any of the supernatural aspects of any of it and so if you don't believe in any of the supernatural aspects of it, then A, sexual morality doesn't matter. Because think about it, if you don't believe in anything supernatural, then it doesn't matter. If you just think, here we are on this planet, um, when we die, it's lights out, soul annihilation, well, then you you might as well do whatever you want. And you might as well do whatever makes your, your uh, private parts feel good, you know? Um, and they don't believe in anything supernatural. And so they don't believe that it's possible for anyone to even live chastely because they don't believe in grace. They don't believe that 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 God gives man supernatural assistance and protection and so forth. They don't believe any of this. And so when you know, if you had James Martin right in front of you and you started talking to him about these things and you started talking to him about, well, you know, God will give you the grace if if you ask for it and if you work work at it. God, of course, God will give you the grace to maintain chastity. But see, he doesn't even believe in any of that. So you're, you'd just be talking right past him. 
Um, all they're interested in doing is ratifying their own perversion and ratifying their own activities and their own sins. And in order to do that, you have to denial, deny the entire supernatural reality. And then it goes into, oh, people who are causing scandal. Mindful of the Lord's words against those who scandalize. The church has the right and duty to repudiate those who give scandal and especially the public corruption of sexual morality. Now, this is an interesting point because it says the church has the right and duty to repudiate those. Well, as we discuss at length almost every week here, the church has been massively infiltrated and we now know that there is forming an apostate apostate anti-church, which right now still is occupying the same sacramental, juridical, liturgical space as the one true church. And so we have this problem. We know that that the church is not going to repudiate these people. And so because the church has been so massively infiltrated, the the magisterium remains. And, you know, the what I should qualify it by saying the institutional church right now is not going to do this because of the infiltration. Yes, it, therefore, the, the church is perfect. It is the spotless the bride of Christ. The church is perfect, the, yes. The men who mm-hmm. make it up are another question entirely. Exactly. So the institutional church, given this infiltration with these men, we cannot expect them to do this. Therefore, it falls to us to do this. We need to start repudiating these people. These people need to be called out as much warning as possible, needs to be shouted from the mountaintops about these incredibly dangerous, murderous people who are trying to hurt as many people as they can, and most especially to hurt young people and children. Okay, oh, and then it gets into civil authority, and civil authority also must guard and defend morality. I mean, this is so incredibly countercultural right now. Oh, and this goes back. Okay, all of all of us Americans, man, this is where we have to have our gut check about, you know, our precious First Amendment. And you cannot, you cannot have any mixing of church and state, and, and it is not for the state to be defending morality. Um, you all realize that this is a completely modern concept. Everybody, the most, the most Protestant or even atheistic Freemason up until just a few decades ago fully understood that, yes, of course, the, the, the state has a duty obligation to guard and defend public morality. Of course, there should be anti-obscenity laws. Of course, you should not be able to have, you know, pornography displayed in public places where, where, you know, not just children, but anybody can see it. Of course, there should be laws against this. And but we just keep chipping away and chipping away and with this lie. And it's all being it's all coming out of this, the Freemasonic American American representative republic and its constitution and the First Amendment trying to convince people that what this means is that the state can have absolutely no engagement in terms of, you know, defending public morality and so on and so forth. There should be censors. There should be public obscenity laws and people should be should be prosecuted underneath them, whether it be behavior, whether it be peddling in peddling in pornographic movies and so on and so forth. And 
And when we talk about, I mean, what's the only class of pornography now that's still that's still illegal? It seems to me that it's basically now just down to child porn. And at the rate we're going, can we not expect that that's going to go away? I, I, don't, I don't know why it wouldn't. The, the Islamic culture, I've been saying this for almost a decade now, the Islamic culture is heavily invested in the sexualization of children, the ratification of, of pedophilia, of child sex, both man-boy and man-girl. Um, they are heavily invested in this, and they're working hand-in-glove with this Soros, Freemasonic, Bergoglio, anti-church machine to, to push forth this agenda of ratifying sex with children, at what point is child pornography going to be no longer prosecuted as a crime? If you have a state that is so impotent and so decrepit and so depraved that it can't even it can't even prosecute things like that i mean at that point that state is so far gone all it clearly is is a criminal organization the only reason that that a state would exist at that point if it can't even enforce those sorts of laws and and protections for the public good the only reason it exists is to give to get power, money, and sex to a class of elitist oligarchs, obviously. Well, I was going to say and redistribute wealth, but yeah. And redistribute wealth, exactly, yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, of course there's going to be cens- censorship. I don't want to live, I don't want to live in a world, and how could you call it, a confessional state where Jesus Christ is the king, and yet there's no there's no government engagement in in maintaining um, public morality. That that doesn't make any sense, especially Americans. Man, you've got to sit down and think this through and get over your your worshiping of the American re- constitutional republic and the American Constitution as something just being on par with with the church itself i mean this is this is insanity it was founded by freemasons it was founded by freemasons that right there tells you i mean it it, it held together for uh, 200 and some odd years because there was still enough of a foundation of some sort of a christian culture once you get rid of the christian culture it's 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 just a rapid descent into Satanism. And that's what we're seeing. All right, let's go on to paragraph number seven, which is titled, Some Heirs Are Condemned. Quite false are the views which harmfully insinuate that actions which the traditional ethics of the church considers opposed to chastity are instead demanded by nature itself or by a healthy development in the human person. The worst is, is to maintain that the most shameful love for persons of the same sex is the prerogative of a higher culture. Oh, isn't that interesting? This sacred synod furthermore declares to be most pernicious the heirs of those according to whom, if you believe it, precisely and above all in the area of chastity, there never or hardly ever are subjectively and seriously evil acts, especially in the time of youth 
or among habitual, occasional, and recidivist sinners on the grounds that they are presumed to lack sufficient freedom or indeed that such actions are inevitable. How prophetic is that? This is exactly what Amoris Laetitia is saying. This is exactly what James Martin is going around and saying. Heck, I can. what jumped out at me, I remember when I was reading myself into the church, I remember reading in the New Catechism, the one promulgated by JP2, under, under the section on sexual morality, it says that um, the guilt uh, or the culpability associated with the sin of masturbation can be mitigated if, if, the, uh, if the sin is habitual, which I read that and I thought, that, that's crazy. Because what that says is if you do it more, you're less guilty. Do it more and you'll be less culpable. That, that's absolutely insane right there. That makes no sense. And that's why people have been asking. I, in fact, I just received an email yesterday or day before yesterday from someone asking, well, what catechism should I read? Well, anything, anything before the Second Vatican Council, the Baltimore Catechism, the Catechism of Trent, just anything. But, you know, for, for English speakers, the Baltimore Catechism is obviously a, a really, really, really good one. But you even, you know, oh, Pope St. John Paul II, which we're going to get into that in a minute. Here it is in this catechism. It says, well, you know, if you're masturbating, if you do it a lot, a lot, or do it more, go ahead and do it more and make it really habitual, then your culpability is reduced. Ugh. Wait, that sounds oh. like uh, sin boldly and believe in God. Uh, uh, yep. Sin boldly, but let your... Where have we heard like that before? Uh, who is that? Who is a kind of, I'm, I don't know. I've got an image in my mind, kind of a pudgy guy. Uh, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, prophetic, prophetic, prophetic. The, the church fathers, I mean, like in, in the sense of Cardinal Taviani, they saw all this stuff coming, man. I think th they just clearly saw what was coming down the pike. And they wanted at, at Vatican II, man, they wanted Vatican II to just, you know, put the brakes on all. All of this, they saw this crap coming and they said, okay, Pope John the 23rd has, has called a council. All right, man, let's, let's put our foot down right in the middle and just block all of this. You know, it reminds me of the scene of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, where he goes out onto the bridge with the smoke demon and says, you shall not pass. That's what Vatican II could have been. It could have been the you shall not pass moment. It could have, as we talked about in the last episode, consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart, do all these things. It could have been a massive, massive pivot point in human history. And it turns out it was a massive pivot point in human history, but it was in the wrong direction. It was towards the evil. So, And for the... Um, for the People asking about which catechism should you read, keep in mind the phrase that uh, truth does not change. And I would recommend get a, get a few copies. If you want to get the mm -hmm. catechism of the Catholic Church, okay, fine. Get uh, a copy of the Baltimore Catechism, the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Read them all and figure out which one changed. Yeah, And that's exactly. the one to throw away. Yep, that's exactly right. Um the other thing, what's the other point in this paragraph? Oh, when um, it's basically homosexuality is called out as an elitism, which I've been talking about this now, especially since I started doing all the work on diabolical narcissism. So the quote 
from this paragraph is the worst is to maintain that the most shameful love for persons of the same sex and one precision I would make here, I would I would not use the word love because love has nothing, nothing to do with sodomy. They're being but, very discreet in the way they were uh, as, as indeed, people used to indeed. be. As people used to be. The worst is to maintain that the most shameful love for persons of the same sex is the prerogative of a higher culture. Yep. They see they saw this elitist um, and we see this a lot in in tratty land, but more in Europe and not so much in the United States. But, you know, it creeps in. It creeps in. There are plenty of American trad sodomites running around Rome. I can tell you that right now. Speaking um, of Rome, reread uh, St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter one. Indeed. Indeed. He, he highlights this. Well, he doesn't yep. he doesn't go into specific detail, um, but but definitely he mentions the love which shouldn't be named. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's not like this is a new vice. Oh, no, it's been around. And the genesis of it, the diabolical narcissism, the the sense of we are different. We are elite. Well, if you think about it, that's the essence of the, the fallen angels. That's the essence of the demons. And I, I think I wrote about this recently or maybe I spoke about it. I, and again, it all kind of blends together. But at the fall, Lucifer and one third of, of the angels they said, I will not serve, not only because they they were offended by the notion of God incarnating as a man. It, it, it was that, but as I believe it was you who pointed this out a while back, Super Nerd, it was Our Lady. It, the, she just enrages them because of her humility. And obviously, you know, our Lord incarnate, he is he is a God man. He is God incarnate as man and so the angels know full well that he is god and that he's the second person of the triune godhead our lady is not god obviously our lady is 100 percent human and she's and she is their queen and she is above them and this absolutely enraged them not just and human so, but one of the one of the members of the subjected sex or the the the, the weaker mm, sex and indeed. and uh, the the name lucifer is the light bearer he is the it, it, i've heard it said that that the way uh things are communicated among the angels is it, the more um what's the right word more more profound angels the more the more powerful and and really it, it's the knowledge of god that makes the angels powerful the more powerful communicate their knowledge to the others and so lucifer saw as his right the ability to communicate god to mankind and somehow be involved in in the incarnation, and I, I may be mistaking something mm. here, but he thought that he had that unique right, and mm-hmm. and for a a human and a woman to be the one who is going to stand between God and and uh, and be the co redemptrix, right. that was the thing he could not abide. Yep. And so they they say we will not serve, and that the essence of we are above. We are other, um, and even, and then obviously it isn't even the plural pronoun. It's I am above, I am other. That is why they cannot love. That is why demons are completely and totally purged of all charity, obviously. Zero charity. That's what diabolical narcissists are. They're human beings who, because they convince themselves that they are elite, that they are above, and that they are other, that it is beneath them to love other people, okay? 
So they voluntarily purge themselves of love because to love another human being is to be is to almost admit that you're one of them. And the diabolical narcissist can't do that. This elitism. That's why you see in these in these circles of these sodomite trads are these men who are absolutely convinced that they're better than everyone else. And this is a very interesting topic and conversation. Um, if you the way you can you can kind of hunt them out and, and, and flesh them out is that, for example, they don't want they don't want the Novus Ordo to go away. They want there. They want there to be these two quote unquote uses. I mean, it's really two rights, but they want there to be these two uses of the Roman right, so that the elite can go to the old mass, and then all the rabble can go to the Novus Ordo. Oh, I've I've heard sodomites go on and on about this, go on and on about how, you know. Well, can you imagine if the if the bus driver or the waiter was there at mass next to you? That's exactly how it's supposed to be. The waiter and the bus driver are supposed to be shoulder to shoulder at the mass with the king. Because in the eyes of God, you're all worthless. You're all sinners. You all need to repent. Why should you be any different and attend a different liturgy? You are not special. You need That's grace right. just like everybody else. Absolutely right. So, I mean, we can get into all of all kinds of very interesting discussions about how this relates to liturgy and the dynamics of the Novus Ordo and so forth. No, the Novus Ordo should be completely eliminated precisely so that everyone goes to exactly the same glorious mass. And of course, right now I'm leaving off the topic of the Byzantine rite and the Eastern Church. And I mean, there's there's other rites, too. But just speaking simply in terms of the Roman rite in the West. This is it. And you hear these sodomites constantly framing themselves as being elite. Oh, I'm too good. I'm I'm too good for that. I'm et cetera, et cetera. It's a it's a dead giveaway. And here it right is it's right there in the schema document. And clearly Cardinal Taviani, Archbishop Lefebvre, and the rest of them, they saw all this coming and they got it down on paper. Um the last um, paragraph that we're going to do on this episode is paragraph 11, and we will copy and paste these into the show notes because they're pretty short. Um, oh, this is a good one. <laughs> paragraph 11. The ends of marriage. The ends of marriage. Of itself, furthermore, and independently of the intentions of the contracting parties, marriage has its own divinely established objective ends. Among these, if careful consideration is given to the divine institution of marriage itself and to nature itself, as well as to the magisterium of the church, here it comes. The primary end of marriage is only the procreation and education of children, even if a particular marriage is not fruitful. Okay, let me go back, and it's that last sentence right there. The primary and that's key. The primary end of marriage is only the procreation and education of children. Okay, what this does right there is it tears apart JP2 and theology of the body. The massive, massive error and heresy in theology of the body that JP2 put forth and why there's just all of this really bad stuff associated with theology of the body and also 
bad people. I mean, you can judge something by the company it keeps, and there's some really, really seriously scandalous, messed up people who are just huge theology of the body groupies and are making their careers off of theology of the body. And theology of the body is messed up, and it's messed up for the reason that that was just read. JP2 says that procreation and education of children and the unitive, um, the unitive benefits and consolations of the spouses are of equal importance. And that is absolutely, positively wrong. That is wrong. They are not equal. The unitive, the uni- the unitive aspect between the spouses is secondary to the procreation and education of children. Go ahead. I was going to say the it's not just uh, paragraph eleven of the original schema that states it this way either. I believe uh, Trent and many other places have said the primary end of marriage is procreation and education of children, and secondary way down the list um, it is the mutual aid and comfort of the spouses. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about well, whoever makes whatever you read that makes a change to traditional Catholic Church teaching, mm-hmm. throw that away. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and um, for, for the people who just get allergic to the idea that somebody could say something bad about Pope John Paul II, mm, there's, there's reasons for it. You, you, can, you can definitely go there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so diabolical because to most people, they would hear that and they would think, well, this is, this is a trifling little point. This is just, this is a really, really nuanced point here. Okay, if you say... Um, that the unity, the the aid and comfort of the spouses to each other is on the same level as procreation. How is that so much different than saying procreation is first and the unitive aspect is second? Is it really that big of a difference? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It absolutely is that much of a difference. A couple, couple of things I want to point out real quick. There's um, mm. Alan Keyes, when he was running for Senate against uh, Barack Obama, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, they yep. they engaged in a uh, on this point. And I'll, I'll find the YouTube video and... Uh, the YouTube link and, and include that in the, in the show notes as well, where the topic of whether or not uh, they were debating gay marriage and Alan Keyes was pointing the, ver- the Catholic position. I believe he's actually traditional Catholic. Uh, I know he's Catholic yeah, for yeah, sure, he is. Mm-hmm. but he was pointing out that the primary end of marriage is procreation. That's why gay marriage cannot be uh, become uh, legally enshrined in, in the laws of the, of the nation. And, and Barry Obama being, or Sotero, whatever his name is, uh, mm-hmm. immediately fired back, well, what about two two old people who are past childbearing age? And I don't remember the exact perfect eloquent answer that that uh, Alan Keyes gave, but it is worth uh, pulling up and looking at it it's, again it's because Abra- it, was, it was beautiful. It's, it's Abraham and Sarah and John the Baptist, okay? Actually, he didn't cite two- that, but... It had to do with with the the essential character of marriage, whether or not the the fruits could uh, come out for one reason or another because of of age. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was it was the difference between the the nature and the accidents of marriage. And, and again, you, I, I I I wish I had the the phrasing. I wonder handy. if we can find that on YouTube. I wonder if that exists on YouTube. Oh, it somewhere. definitely that does. Be, I'll find okay. the link and put it in the show notes. Yeah. But the other thing yeah. I was going to mention about uh, theology of the body uh, at one point because of. Uh, non-traditional Catholic friends who are big fans of this uh, mm-hmm. kept talking about it and I thought, okay, fine, let me read this to figure out what how how to counter the arguments of this. And the point at which I stopped was actually quite very early on. It was still the discussion of Genesis. And one of the things that I keyed in on and, and, and noticed is that 
I believe it's John Paul II who's writing this, uh, unless it was a ghostwriter. He starts making comments about the redactors and the different authors in Genesis. And I was like, wait a minute. I know for mm-hmm. certain that I, I've heard warnings from priests. If you see anything suggesting the whole redaction theory of, of the first five books of the gospel, run, because this is mm-hmm. riddled through with error. Moses wrote the first five books, and any suggestion to the contrary is just you're, you're, you're putting your soul in jeopardy at this point, because what follows is all based on a false premise. So again, it, it, when you see this and it's plain as day, mm-hmm. don't even bother reading further. Yep. That's, that's good advice about the whole, who, who is the author of the Torah? <laughs> it's, it's Moses. I remember, um, I went through RCIA and the, oh man, I was mad. So we received into the church Easter vigil of 2007. The next Sunday, the next Sunday, the speaker was some, some layman and he was, he was a doctor and he stood up and he just, he, he basically hit the first five minutes of his presentation that he gave at the RCIA class, the Sunday after we were received into the church, the first five minutes was him, you know, spewing out his resume and i i'm i have a phd in this and a degree in that and blah 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 i i I don't care he stands up and gives and just you know but just puffed up and i'm so smart and i understand all these things and clearly we know that um (laughs) moses obviously did not write the old testament and we know that none of these things are actually happened i mean i'm sitting there just like oh i went off I went off. And you know, th- that's the thing. You've got these people who are who are running these RCIA programs and you know, they're they're good intentioned. They're good intentioned people. But how could you sit there as an RCIA director and listen to someone get up at the front of the room and tell people who have been received into the church for less than a week that um oh by the way we all know that that none of this stuff in the bible is actually true i mean and you just sit there and you don't say anything and it it falls to people like me and there was another there was a couple that i went through rcia with who they were um they were episcopalians and they came in and they just said flat out we we went to to church one sunday morning and we both agreed that the earth had essentially split open swallowed the episcopal church and there was just there was just nothing left and we had to get out of there and obviously i mean that's that what they were seeing was they were seeing all kinds of homosexual stuff and 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 all of that and obviously the episcopal church <laughs> that got the earth opened up and swallowed it up about what 500 years ago now but um that's another conversation of itself but just the fact that people sit in silence and don't correct these things that's a really good point that you made about uh, uh about theology of the body and jp2 jp2 was just he was not sound and this is this is where we're going to launch into and segue into this very quickly into this question about people are asking me about what what is my personal position on all of these saints who are who are being canonized, particularly if we want to call it in the post-Vatican II era? And for me personally, I think the last canonized saint that you know you feel really confident about and you you know that he was a saint is of course Saint Padre Pio. Um, almost everything after that, it, it, it's just 
there, it, it's so problematic. There are so many problems. The process has been so watered down. I mean, you know, now it's to the point where what are they down to one miracle in quotes? And, you know, like with Paul the sixth, I mean, someone someone went out in in January and forgot their scarf and didn't get a cold after they prayed to Paul the sixth or something like that. And that's that's I mean, I'm being facetious, but the standard for miracles now is so incredibly low that it it just it's a joke i mean padre pio he had the stigmata he could read souls in the confessional he bilocated i mean you you can be very 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 confident about padre pio and everyone else i'm just either i don't know if you'd use the word agnostic but i'm just very neutral on um and skeptical then people is the word i would skept- use skeptical skeptical i would say everybody since since the uh the devil's advocate went away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you've got to be, you've got to have a, a bit of a question about this. And and if you're not familiar with this, the devil's advocate was somebody, who, uh, um, a canon lawyer, I, I don't forget what exact stature it was, a, a prelate of some sort. Uh, his, his sole point was to, as though you're, you're having an adversarial type of, mm-hmm. of trial, uh, regarding the question of shall this person be canonized? His sole point was to give the reasoning why this person should not be canonized. And in the case right. of Blessed Mary of Agreda, uh, the, the devil's advocate position was based on a mistranslation of one of her books from Spanish into, I want to say, French. Uh, so ev- even something that was itself um, would have, should have been thrown out on a technicality because it, she didn't write error. It was, it was the translator who had the error. Even that was sufficient to say, okay, we have questions about whether or not error could be taken Based on something she wrote, we're going to stop it right now because it doesn't. Yep. The, the The question of canonization isn't isn't a question of whether or not somebody is in heaven. I certainly hope John Paul II is in heaven. Uh, I'm, I I don't question the, the question isn't whether or not somebody's in heaven. Is the question of do we look at their their life? Did they have heroic virtue? Heroic did virtue. Did they have virtue yeah. at all? Um, mm-hmm. Did they have? Uh, are their teachings something you can reliably follow in order to get to heaven? Mm. And in the case of, I just mentioned uh, Blessed Mary of Agreda, somebody who could bilocate, uh, somebody who, um, when the missionaries came to what is now Texas and, and uh, New Mexico and, and the, the locals, the, the, the Indians, uh, were talking about visions of a, of a woman in blue flying through the air and then, and then teaching them the faith. At first, the missionaries thought they were, they were referring to Mary, but one of, the, one of the missionaries actually recognized the description that the, 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 the Indians were giving. It's like, wait a minute, I know that nun. She's back in Spain. And, and this was, this was uh, confirmed. So the, the point is, this is somebody who had extraordinarily um, mm-hmm. incredible phenomenon surrounding her life. Uh, was was literally being a missionary on a, on a continent she didn't live. And yet one small error, which probably could have been overlooked, stopped the whole process. We're not saying yep. she's not in heaven. She's almost certainly in heaven. And you mm-hmm. can pray to her. She's still a, a blessed. But the point being that when when the whole process is so lenient, mm-hmm. when the bar has been lowered so much, you've got to question um, – whether or not there are mistakes being made, and this is pretty darn serious. I mean, there, yeah. you should not have people going on to the calendar of, of of saints who you have any question about anything in their life. That's right. That's right. And with it, 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 the, the stakes are high because, for example, with JP2, I mean, 
he he was a phenomenologist. And if any of you know anything about philosophy, I mean, phenomenology is the the philosophical position that, you know, uh, external things like, you know, I'm sitting at this table right now and I can I can bang on the table. Phenomenology says that the table doesn't actually exist. The only thing that exists is is my is inside of my brain the the conception of the ta- I mean this that sounds rather a, Buddhist that is crazy it is absolutely crazy but it was very common and it still is common especially amongst the Germans who are just my goodness just put the whole German church under interdict and get it over with you look at the fact that he was a phenomenologist you look at theology of the body and what we just talked about and the massive massive error that is in it and the damage that's done you look at all of this gay marriage crap if you want to see where the roots of that spring from look no further than jp2 look no further than phenom- uh, than uh, theology of the body because as we were talking about if if the the unitive aspect if that is on equal par with procreation, that's the the Campbell's nose under the tent that just opened the floodgates for all of this. This is huge. His ecumenism, what he did at Assisi, his kissing of the Koran, and and you know all of this crap that went on. Man, this is this is serious business. And he he was not a good administrator of the church. Look at all the, the filth and rabble that he elevated to um, bishops, to cardinals. Look at, look at the, the, the rabble that executed this faux conclave and, you know, have, have installed now this anti-Pope Bergoglio. The vast majority of them were made cardinals by JP two. He was not a good administrator. He he, people say, oh, he did so much to roll back, you know, the the disaster of Paul the sixth pontificate. That is damning with faint praise to say you didn't actually make things worse. Well, I mean, some people would argue in, that in a sense, he there are certain things that were made worse. I mean, at least Paul VI promulgated, even though he didn't write it, he promulgated um, Humana Vitae, as I've written about before, and this bears repeating and to be shouted from the mountaintops. Paul VI originally wrote Humana Vitae to, to ratify contraception. When it was submitted to the CDF to Cardinal Ottaviani, Cardinal Ottaviani just scrapped all of that garbage and rewrote the contraception bits and um, scholars can can instantly see the difference because Cardinal Ottaviani was a Thomist and Paul VI hated St. Thomas Aquinas and so you just read the contraceptive bits and it's, it's Thomism, it's right there. It's clear that Paul VI did not write that. That's the reason why all of the infiltrators and all the sodomites in the church hated Paul VI after Humanae Vitae was promulgated because he had promised them that he was going to ratify contraception. And they knew that Paul VI didn't, quote unquote, stand up to Cardinal Ottaviani. What we know, what actually happened is that because Paul VI, as awful as he was, because he was the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth, this this protection was in place, this negative protection, the power of the Holy Ghost protecting the church. And even Paul VI, having promised the sodomites that he was going to ratify contraception, it didn't happen. 
Isn't that interesting? It didn't happen. Cardinal Ottaviani stepped in, saved the day, and Paul VI promulgated the document because he was the vicar of Christ. He had the negative protection. That's not what's going on now with Bergoglio, obviously. Um, and so, you know, Assisi, all, all of these things, JP2, Paul VI, yada, da, 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 bad things going on. JP2 has already been quote unquote canonized. They're going to do Paul VI. I mean, heroic virtue, that's one of the standards, heroic virtue, right? Also, not being a sodomite, also not being just a psychological train wreck. They would find Paul VI in his bedchamber in the morning, curled up on the floor, sobbing uncontrollably. Are you telling me that this man is a saint? One of the indicators, one of the indicators of sanctity of someone being a saint is, hello, the fact that they're not crazy. That's a, that's a huge thing. Saints tend not to be crazy. Now, they tend to be maybe eccentric and stand out in the world, but they're not, they're not crazy like that. I mean, just the notion, and they are going to canonize him because what they're doing is they're trying to canonize the Second Vatican Council. That's why they canonized John the 23rd. There's no cult. There's no cult of, of, of um, uh, popular piety surrounding John the 23rd in any way, shape, manner, or form. Nothing. The only reason they did that is because they're trying to canonize the Second Vatican Council. And we talked about, you know, what the Second Vatican, how, how the Second Vatican Council, Council will be viewed historically after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. It will be completely and totally denounced because it was a failed council. That should tell you right there. I, I like your mispronunciation there of Second Vatican Council. Yeah, Second Vatican Council. Yeah, that's a, that, maybe that was a little Freudian. I don't know. <laughs> no, we, will, we, would never, uh, we would never invoke Freud in anything but the most, most horrific negative terms. You just did. So – uh, well, yeah, there you <laughs> okay, go. <laughs> I'll, I'll stop now. <laughs> well, um, I'm looking at the clock here, and I think we should call this an episode. What do you think? I think so. And to something earlier, we mentioned the uh, the novena for Father Martin. For I, I, I've James got a, Martin, yeah. I've got a suggestion. How about starting okay. on September 29th, the, uh, okay. the Feast of the Exorcist Angel, St. Michael, through okay. October 7th, the Feast of the Holy Rosary, which is also Our Lady of Victory, but let's look at some of the other feasts in the in the interim. St. Jerome, confessor and doctor of the church. Uh, mm-hmm. I already mentioned uh, the epistle to uh, St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, perhaps mm-hmm. something to, to, to meditate on. Uh, mm-hmm. The 17th Sunday after Pentecost contains, let me get my tab up here, contains this nice little meditation. Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul, and the, and the greatest commandment, uh, I'm butchering this. And the second is like the first, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, including mm-hmm. praying for those who need prayers. So Indeed. Uh, that that's a, a worthy and timely consideration. Other feasts uh, in, in this novena, proposed novena, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Feast of the, the Holy Guardian Angels, St. Teresa the Child Jesus, St. Francis mm. of Assisi, St. Placid mm. and Companions, St. Bruno, the founder of the Carthusians. Um, and then, of course, the Feast of Our Blessed Mother, um, uh, the Feast of the Holy Rosary. So I, wow. I would propose that time frame. I, I agree. I will, pu- I will build this up and make, after the podcast goes up, I'll put this up. And we might even do daily post, you know, something every day for each one of these feasts and so forth. Excellent idea. Excellent. For James Martin. 
for James Martin S.J. that he repent, that he repent of these sins, that he revert to Catholicism, and that he make a good confession, die in a state of grace, and achieve the beatific vision. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's put this one in the can, my friend, and we will uh, we'll plan on doing the next episode next Tuesday, if that sounds all right. That sounds good to me. As a all general right. reminder, uh, Masses for Anne's Benefactors uh, are set on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and there is a we- weekly requiem at some point as well. Please join your intentions with these Masses. The email address for the podcast, if you want to send questions, comments, or feedback, is podcast at barnhart.biz. This podcast is produced by Super Super Nerd Media. I can't even say my own name, darn it. Uh, (laughs) If you found value in this episode, uh, if you'd like to return some value, you can do that at supernerdmedia.com slash donate. Anne, any parting thoughts between now and Tuesday? Um, I want today in this little wrap up to just thank you, Super Nerd. I want to thank you so much for all that you're doing and all you've done and hopefully all that we will continue to do. And, um, I know you've been very busy over the last couple weeks and, um, I just can't thank you enough and I can't thank your, uh, your family enough and all of the, the patients that they show and, in releasing you and giving you enough time to do all this and be assured of my prayers for you and your family. Um, every single day, every single day, super nerd. I appreciate it and not, not to be overly dramatic about it, but, um, I'm a sinner like pretty much everybody else too. And, and, um, if I, if I didn't take that seriously and, and, and realize that I need prayers as well, um, I would be setting myself up for dramatic failure. So yes, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. God bless you, friend. And God bless you all guys. We will talk to you next week. See you then.